Welcome to Him We Proclaim, a podcast devoted to the preaching ministry of the Mount Church. Know that the following sermon is specifically intended to build up our local church in Clemson, South Carolina. Feel free to listen along and distribute what you hear, while prioritizing what we pray is the faithful preaching ministry of the healthy local church to which you meaningfully belong. With that, all grace to you as you listen to this episode of Him We Proclaim. Well, good morning. Let me invite you to turn your Bibles to John chapter 6. This morning we're going to be reading and then studying verses 22 to 40 together. Megan, is this your water? It's nobody's. Great. Thank you. So John 6, beginning in verse 22, John writes under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, on the next day, the crowd that remained on the other side of the sea saw that there had been only one boat there, and that Jesus had not entered the boat with his disciples, but that his disciples had gone away alone. Other boats from Tiberias came near the place where they had eaten the bread after the Lord had given thanks. So when the crowd saw that Jesus was not there, nor his disciples, they themselves got into the boats and went to Capernaum seeking Jesus. When they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me, not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on him God the Father has set his seal. Then they said to him, What must we do to be doing the works of God? Jesus answered them, This is the work of God, that you believe in Him whom He has sent. So they said to Him, Then what sign do you do that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness, as it is written, He gave them bread from heaven to eat. Jesus then said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is He who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. They said to Him, Sir, give us this bread always. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me, and yet do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me. And whoever comes to me I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life. And I will raise him up on the last day. Pause there for today. So let's pray together. Lord, we thank you for your word as we always want to do. And we do pray now. We pray with all our hearts that you would do business, your business, by your spirit with our hearts. Perhaps there is one here this morning or more who have not yet eaten of the bread of life. I want to pray now that you would bring them 
to receive grace, to believe in Christ and be saved today. And I pray for each one of us who have believed that our faith would be all the more encouraged and strengthened and made to rejoice in our all-sufficient Savior. We ask this for your glory and in your name. Amen. So we want to continue today uh, what we began a week ago, and that's learning about the divine sufficiency of Jesus. Uh, That's the overriding theme of John chapter 6. And last time out, that sufficiency was applied distinctly to His disciples, the disciples of Jesus, in proving sufficient to meet the material wants of the crowd. Uh, He put His own to the test. Did they, His own disciples, did they really know Jesus? Did they know that for every deed and time of need, Jesus really was all-sufficient? And the further question is, do we know that? Do we know that? Christian living, we said, is leaning, leaning into Christ. Were, Were we, having heard that a week ago, were we improved in that this past week? Did we have an improved lean into Christ? Was there a a spike in our praying, in our pleading for omnipotent grace uh, to be evident in our hearts and in our lives and in our ministry? Or did we go on in the same degree of either self-sufficiency on the one hand or hopeless despair on the other? Jesus provided for His disciples in the wilderness of ministry and delivered them in the sea of trial to teach us something really, really important, and that is that He has a super abundance of grace for all the occasions that prove just how much we need that grace. And so much of our sufficiency for all things related to Christianity is found in that discovery, just how much we need Christ. As in finding that it's when we are weak that we are then made what? Strong. Or more to our text today, how it's in realizing we're lost in ourselves that we're then ready to be found in Christ. Jesus is all sufficient. He really is. For all the Christian life and all Christian ministry, but going into that life, going into that ministry, we find that He is equally all sufficient for making and then sustaining a believer out of an unbeliever. A new creation out of an old creation. We cannot, in the least, save or keep ourselves. But Jesus absolutely can. And what we see in our text this morning is that He will. And how constantly we need to be reminded of that as believers. To be reminded of the grace of God towards us. To be reminded how Jesus really is all our life. Not just at the beginning, but all the way through to the end, and then even beyond it. Jesus is all our life. So let's see it together, starting with Jesus really pointedly reproving unbelievers in verses 22 to 27. Uh, you look there, you see that the crowd of yesterday's feast is seeking Jesus in earnest. And why are they seeking Jesus like this? Because He really did do this great thing. He really did create a a banquet feast for them in the wilderness. Jesus really is compelling to unbelievers. He really is worth the hunt. But we see in these verses, they're having a really hard time finding Him, 22 to 25 especially. They're having a really hard time finding Him. I thought we left Him over here. Uh, His disciples, we know, they they went over there. But yeah, I'm pretty sure... He didn't go with them, and we left him right here, but now he's, he's not here. Where did he go? Where is Jesus? And baked into all that is something that we know that they don't know, and that is that Jesus really did walk upon the stormy sea. That's how he mysteriously left where he was and got up with his disciples, but these folks don't know that. And given the opportunity in verse 25 to clarify that for them, Jesus doesn't go that route. He does not tell them. You see there that they do find Him. 
And yet, instead of like, good job, guys, you've been so steadfast in your search of me, instead of congratulating them on their success, they have finally found him, what does he do? He pointedly reproves them for it because he knows their motive is all wrong. And at one level, to us especially today, that that may seem rather strange. Here is the people who have come after Jesus. They've sought Him out day and night all over the place. They've been in earnest to find Him. I mean, again, as you read those first few verses of our text, we can almost hear them huffing and puffing and bent over at the waist from all of the exercise back and forth. And they've, they've finally found Him. And Jesus reproves them. Again, why? Because in truth, it was not Him that they sought out. I mean, it was, but it wasn't. They sought Him out under their own pretenses to use Him for their own purposes, which sadly had nothing at all to do with the eternal salvation of their souls. And so it is for so many today. So I'll just ask each one of us here this morning, why are you seeking after Jesus? For what are you searching Him out? Is it to get Christ or some material benefit by Him? Is it to appease curiosity? Is it to just kind of go with the crowd? All your friends on campus or wherever, they're going and so we're going to go too. Is it to appease the crowd? Is it to scratch the, the itch of cultural habit? Is it to, to numb that scourge of guilt you feel after a week of sin and unrighteousness? Is it to to satisfy a friend who's invited you? Is it to pursue maybe a meal with someone after service? Is it to to maybe pursue a date? Uh, Is it to pursue a kind of reputation? Is it to make an appearance? Or maybe is it to make some kind of trouble? Why are we here? Is it to be converted? Or being converted, being saved, Is it to be sanctified? Is it to find Jesus all sufficient for your souls? Does it have to do with the eternal state that you're going to inherit one day? As with these folks, Jesus knows why we're here. Jesus knows why we're after Him. As one said then, the sinfulness of hypocrisy is very great. But its folly is greater still. It's not hard to deceive pastors or relatives or friends. A little decent outward profession will often go a long way. But, he says, it is impossible to deceive Christ. He knows his own. And he knows those who are not his own. And so you see how he reproves them here. He says, truly, truly, here's the divine truth, you are seeking me not because you saw the signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. And this is no good. He tells them, Listen, in your pursuit of me, you've only really gone backwards. They're now two infinite steps removed from eternal life. The signs that he is doing are really just signposts to something that is meant to be signified. In this case, in every case, that's Jesus as the promised Savior of a sinful world. But in their seeing of the signs, they went backward rather than forward. They did not believe in Jesus for salvation. They went after Jesus as a chef. As one put it, quote, instead of seeing in the bread the sign, and then the thing signified, they had seen in the sign, not the thing signified, 
but only the bread. (laughs) They were indefatigable materialists. Oh, my dear American Christians, just give us our meat and drink with a side of Jesus. Let our prosperity and our relative luxury overflow and we will too often convince ourselves like those at Laodicea that all is well with our souls. How we will labor for the food that perishes. Do we not? Exert our greatest energies for an estate that will fade and pass away. Don't care how how big it is, how great it is. It's going to fade. It's going to be gone. We give our whole lives to it. Drown ourselves in a sea of business and busyness with nary a thought. Just think about your last week. Nary a thought of our soul's health and eternal state. So, we need to listen to Jesus here as intently as an unbeliever and hear the reproof He gives. Do not labor for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will, note it, give to you. For on Him God the Father has set a seal. He does not mean... Don't labor for life's necessities. Nor does he say don't labor at all. He says, if you're going to labor chiefly, supremely for something, let it be what grants and nourishes eternal life. Friends, there is a world beyond the horizon of this one. A life above the life we're living. Here and now. And he's just saying, do do all you can to discover that. To devour that. To develop that. And delight in that. It, It is against the counsel of Christ to give your utmost to your body while neglecting your soul. To time and not to eternity. To this life and not to the life to come. But so as that is what these were doing, Jesus pointedly reproves them for it. I want us to see, He never does that. He never does that without the inseparable aim of giving soul-filled correction. And so we come to see Jesus patiently correcting these unbelievers in verses 28 to 34. And, uh, man, how patience is required. He's just told them to labor for the food that endures to eternal life. But that that food is a gift that He alone is able and authorized by God the Father to give to them. It's a grace. Or to kill the suspense further, we know what that food is. It is the life-giving death of Christ. It's Christ crucified with all of the grace that God has committed to that work. But here, what they heard and how they then respond to that in verse 28. It is the definitive instinct of every single unbelieving soul in the world. Perhaps it's the echo of your own heart right now. Well, great, Jesus. Eternal life. That sounds really nice. Tell me, what must I do? What must we do to be doing the works of God? Do you hear it? as we also are geared, they hear labor, right? Labor. And then they go deaf 
to grace. Or if they heard it, they believe against reason that it is a grace, it is a gift that they must and can actually earn. You see this? There's, there's no question in their minds. They can do what God requires for eternal life. They are capable. They are adequate. They are self-sufficient. Though, in Deuteronomy chapter 9, God warned their fathers long ago against ever believing that it was because of their righteousness that they would enter the land. These are sold on the lie that they can do it. Not just righteousness, but righteousness enough to earn, to deserve, to merit eternal life. You don't tell me, don't tell them that they can't do what God demands. It's not like they are sinners. It's not like they're hopeless in themselves. It's not like they need the grace of God. It's not like their only hope really is Jesus. Except it's all like that. Friends, sinners have no inherent righteousness whatsoever. No inherent ability to do what God requires. No inherent will to know their greatest need or how in the least to meet it. These folks right here, they're about to quote Scripture to Jesus. These are not folks without a Bible. These are folks who are about to quote Psalm 78 at Jesus. Would you have quoted Psalm 78 to Jesus? And yet they don't know the first thing about it. So Jesus patiently attempts to correct him again. And in it, He supplies for all time, the sinner's only hope of eternal life. You see verse 29, he reduces their works, plural, to one divine work. There is, after all, I want us to hear just one thing. One thing that God requires of us for eternal life now that we are fallen. Jesus says, it is that we, what? Believe in Him whom the Father has sent. So it is not faith in the abstract. It is not faith in some indefinite God of king and country. It is certainly not faith in ourselves. It's faith in the Christ of God. It's faith in the biblical Jesus. It's ultimately entrusting your soul to the saving work of the crucified and risen Lord. One thing you and I can never do is save ourselves. It's not possible. If you need to, please hear that this morning. Let no one leave this morning thinking, I got this. I can do it. You don't. You don't got this. You won't ever. You can't do it. There is only one way for a sinner to get to God, and that is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus alone. That's it. And so what we have here in this text is sort of the great prelude to what the Bible will say everywhere else later. That is, it is not by works of the law. It's not by our own doing but only by faith in Jesus that we are justified, that we are forgiven of our sins, that we are counted righteous, that we are set at peace with God, that we are reconciled to God forevermore. Let us praise God that there is a way for sinners to come into the presence of God forever, and that He has made that way through Christ, and that He has not hidden Christ from us. And yet, he does remain hidden to these folks here. It goes in their ears and bounces off their hearts. And the ricochet is brutal to behold. If it's one Adamic instinct to unhear grace 
in favor of works. To disregard the Savior in order to guard self-righteousness. It's another to activate a defense mode at the simple word of saving faith in Jesus. I mean, like, far, far from going great lengths to get eternal life, we go all we can to get away from it. It's right there in Jesus. Beloved, these folks here in our passage know full well what Jesus had just done. There's a chance, I know it's the next day, but there's a chance they still had kind of like, whew, that was a lot of bread. Full bellies, straight from his hand. And at the first mention of sin-asserting, works-nullifying, soul-saving faith in Jesus, it's like they hadn't seen or tasted or experienced the first thing about him. You want to be our food pantry, Jesus? We know all we need to know about you. But now, whoa. You want to save our souls? Blank slate. Start over. Prove it to us all again. It's a defense mechanism. It's a shock collar. Right? You're getting too close. Too close to what? Too close to freedom. Too close to life. You better fall back now. Shock. I was recently sharing with someone who I've uh, shared the gospel with probably a couple hundred times at this point. And to date, to date, it never fails. That as soon as I press in on them about faith in Christ, they return to all their hang-up. Every time. Doesn't matter how many times those hang-ups are unhung. They will not move past them. They can't. And why can't they? Because to do so would mean getting closer, so to speak, to salvation. That doesn't make any sense, Brian. Why would anyone not want salvation? Exactly. Why not indeed? It's very simple. They don't see salvation as salvation. They see it as their destruction. True faith in Jesus, listen. True faith in Jesus means destroying the sin that you have always loved. It means destroying the pride that you've always been so proud of. It means destroying the master that you've always, for the most part, delighted to serve. It's safe there. So they try to dismiss the Savior. Ignorance is bliss, so they defend their prison cells against the Deliverer, even to their destruction. And so here, in verses 30 and 31, they ask Him what? They can't get past it. This is their hang-up. Do another sign. As if they weren't where they were because they knew He'd already done so many. Never mind. Never mind all that. What will you do for us now, Jesus? What have you done for us lately, Jesus? It's never enough. Jesus is never enough. Jesus could could rise from the dead, and He will rise from the dead. And they're still going to say, do it again. Friends, the issue is not with their eyes. The issue is not with their experience of Jesus. It's not with some felt sense of His powers. The issue is entirely with their hearts. The problem is plain old unbelief. Except by a work of God within our hearts, living sin will always outpace, outsmart, overpower, and overrule the dead soul that it masters. Always. 
And so he is sadly right, who once said, quote, few things are so little realized as the true and terrible extent of human unbelief. To what lengths we will go to keep up the look of being okay. I'm good. I'm okay. Everything, everything's falling apart, but I'm, I'm good. <laughs> to not believe and be way better than okay. To be eternally saved. And to these here, speaking of lengths, I mean, they just do something incredible in verse 31. Like the devil in the wilderness temptation, like their religious leaders, what do they do? They throw Scripture at the Word incarnate. Our fathers ate manna in the desert as it is written, He, whereby He they mean Moses, gave them bread from heaven to eat. It's in the Bible, Jesus. And so patiently, Jesus corrects them again. He says, essentially, true enough. True enough. That is in the Bible, but be careful, your godlessness is showing. It was not Moses. <laughs> it wasn't a man. It wasn't Moses who gave you that bread. See, God is absent from their minds and from their hearts. It wasn't Moses who gave you that bread. It was my Father. It didn't come from a man. It came from God. Give God the glory, not Moses. It was not a human work. It was a divine grace. And it is all our poverty still today to make errors like that. To be so man-centered instead of God-centered in our reading of Scripture and the salvation that it reveals. No wonder they struggled so impossibly to praise Jesus while affording it so easily to one another. No wonder they don't know who Jesus is or what He came to be for them. Their God is man rather than the God of man. It's like he's not even in his own master story of redemption. And dear ones, let me say, that's not entirely their fault. Not entirely. Are we to doubt that they doubled down on that poorest habit of biblical interpretation by the method of those who taught them as the leaders go? What's the saying? So goes the followers. Okay? Recall just how godless and Christless the leader's study and understanding of Scripture was. John 5. You search the Scriptures diligently, thinking that in them you have eternal life. These are they that they testify about me. You will not come to me to have life. Christless. So is this a surprise here? That they would be so godless and Christless in their understanding of it? Beloved, listen. All that to say this. Be very careful to accrue for yourself here or elsewhere godly teachers who will feed you the undiluted Jesus. And pray for us in that. For your own soul, demand that. Be unnerved and discontented with that common approach to the Bible that elevates people over God. You very well may miss Jesus like these folks. But you see, Jesus, Jesus won't miss Jesus. No, He says here, not only did my Father give you that old manna, He's giving you something new and He's giving you something better. He's giving you that be careful with the wording here, right? The, the true bread from heaven. For, verse 33, the bread of God is He who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. That is, 
The manna, as Jesus understands the manna, is what we call a type. A type. Within the wider story of redemption, it was an historical provision for Israel that pointed to some greater provision of God for the salvation of this post-Edenic world, and that is Jesus. The true bread, you see in the text, the true bread is a He. It's a person. He who came down from heaven to give not just any life, but eternal life, not just to Israel, but to the world. It's greater, it's better, it's bigger. So the true bread is no bread at all. It's the Savior of sinners. And sadly, they hear what Jesus says, like what we see in that, I don't know if you've seen the, the meme with Superman, and there's like the joke, you've told a joke, right? And the joke has like gone over his head, and Superman's like watching the joke. Anyway, okay. It's like that here. Except it's not a joke. It's the truth that would save their souls that they are totally unable to grasp. They don't get it. You see what they say? Hey, that, now that sounds great, Jesus. We can almost smell that bread baking. If you don't mind, give us some of that bread always. And so after all that Jesus has said, they are no closer to Christ. They have missed grace. They have rebuffed on faith. And they have not comprehended Christ. Grace, faith, Jesus. They've missed it. They're still as materialistic as ever. Still as fleshly. Still as ignorant of the Spirit. Still as neglectful of their souls. Still as enslaved to sin. Still as obstinate to the Savior. And so in evangelistic ministry, so also in all truly divine ministry, oh man, again, painstaking patience is required. And Jesus is the great example of it. And I would just ask each one of us this morning, is there someone recently that maybe you have given up on? Uh, it's been too long. <laughs> Share the gospel with them so many times. They don't ever believe it. Is there anyone that you've chalked up as a lost cause? Have you just kind of cut your losses? You know? A word for you. While those people live, continue to hope. Some might hear all of this and go, what is the point? If, if unbelievers won't be turned by Jesus, what use are my efforts? And yet, friend, that did not keep Jesus, who knows the power of unbelief perfectly well, from patiently enduring with them in the hope of their salvation. Why? Because faith really does come through hearing. And hearing by the Word of Christ. There is a power greater than unbelief. There is always hope in a God of all grace. He lacks nothing to save the soul in a moment. And so we see Jesus doesn't even cut things off at this point. He presses still further and He plainly instructs unbelievers. So, okay, if you want... Plain Jesus. Here is plain Jesus. It doesn't get plainer than it gets here with Jesus. He says, folks, okay, listen, you haven't got it about the bread. <laughs> he goes, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. And whoever believes in me shall never thirst. That is, Jesus is the gift of God to a fallen world. If anyone, anyone entrusts themselves to me and the provision that I'm going to make in the cross, 
they will find all they need for salvation. They will find all that God requires for eternal life. They will find all they need to live to God. They will find me, Jesus, to be all sufficient for their souls. Any can find all in Christ. It's an invitation with the most alluring charms. But so what's the question that immediately arises? Why then wouldn't someone come to Christ? Because you see, verse 36, Jesus is pretty frank about it. None are barred from Him. None are barred from Him, but those who bar themselves. They've seen all they need to see. Indeed, they've seen what most have not seen, what we have not seen and need not see, he's going to say later on in the Gospel, to be saved. And even though they've seen these things, they've spoiled it. They've let it spoil. They haven't collected that true manna. They haven't believed in Christ. And they are, you see again in verse 36, they are responsible for it. And that is where we landed two weeks ago. And it is absolutely true. But, as Jesus will not suffer unbelief to suggest any kind of deficiency or shortcoming in the purpose, plan, and power of God, what does he begin to do in verse 37? He begins to contend for the sovereignty of God and salvation, which, if we have ears to hear it, is sure and holy ground for divine hope in life and ministry, both for time and for eternity. So verse 37, what does Jesus say? We have to wrestle with these things. They're in the Bible. He says, All that the Father gives me will come to me. That's why they're not coming, perhaps. All that the Father gives me will come to me. So there he tells us who will believe in him. And at the divine level, why those will believe in Him, and that they will absolutely believe in Him. That's all in that verse. The success of our labors, I want you to hear, as we labor out in the fields, the success of those labors is guaranteed. God has given a people, we know from Revelation, an innumerable multitude to Christ who will eventually respond, listen now, to the yet preaching of the gospel by repenting of their sin and believing in Him. And in saying that, I did not say, we know who those people are, or that because they are elect, they need not repent and believe. Or that because divine grace has set them apart, we needn't do all we can to reach them with the gospel. I didn't say any of that. What I said was, Christ has a definite group of people who will believe in Him. And that this is both motive for and hope in doing gospel ministry. Or at least it was for Paul when he said in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 10, I endure everything for the sake of the elect. If you want to contend against election, the thing that I would ask you is, are, are you doing more than Paul to see that those people are saved? Because election here is actually driving Paul to endure everything that those people might be saved. Do you see that? I endure everything for the sake of the elect that they also may obtain something that until they believe in Christ, they do not have the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. Or, we need to get this, how right after Romans chapter 9, he says, okay, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. 
But how are they to call if they do not believe? And how are they to believe if they do not hear? Or how are they to hear if no one preaches? And how are they to preach if no one goes? If no one is sent? And so Jesus here too keeps all of it intact for us. He maintains an invitation to all the world. An invitation that people will responsibly receive or reject while also expressing utter confidence, not in people, but in God. My confidence is in the saving, sovereign purpose of God. Christ has a people. That's what he's saying. And this is where the text turns especially sweet. For any who do believe, Jesus will hold you fast. That's the rest of the text. Jesus will hold you fast. We cannot be lost. We can go dry spiritually. We may wander from time to time. We may lose ourselves <laughs> throughout the day. Okay? But Christ will never no, never lose His divine grip on His people. He is willing and all-sufficient to keep us for Himself. You see what He says in the rest of verse 37? Whoever comes to Me, I will never... It's a double, double negative there. Never, no, never. Never cast out. We, we may ought to be cast out, but He will never do it. He has a gift to honor. He has a purchase to keep. He has a will, Father, to obey. And so whatever our sins, whatever our fears, whatever our stumbles and blights, however many they may be, however frequent they may be, however prolonged, however the adversary argues against us, both in our own hearts and at His throne, when once we have come to Jesus... We are His. We're His. He will never cast us out. He was cast out. Precisely that we might be brought in. And will He ever put us away? Not for any reason. And what's more, if you look in verse 39, it's not just that He won't cast you out, but that nothing can pry open his fingers, and pull you out. What good is a will to keep us, right? What good is the will to keep us if He is not able? If He doesn't have the power to keep us? If there is anything strong enough to steal us away? But what does Jesus say? He says in verse 39, He will lose nothing of all that the Father has given to him. And so as there is no deficiency, no change in His will, I won't cast them out. So there is no deficiency or change in His omnipotent strength to hold you fast. There's nothing stronger than Jesus. There is nothing so strong that it can pry open that hand or weaken His grip in the slightest. His will is unwavering and His grasp is unshakable. Nothing in all creation. Not sin. Not Satan. Not suffering. Not your past. Not your present. Not anything in the future. Not anything that's in front of you. Not a thing in this life. Not even death. Is stronger than the love of Christ for you. It is a love that cannot be conquered. It is a covenant that's considered every separating soul-killing thing and overruled it. That's the force of these final verses. Christ has come to us from heaven to do His Father's will stated three times. This is it, that His people who were dead in sin would live and living never die. <laughs> that is, that being born again to believe in Him he Himself would proceed to carry us through all of life, whatever that means, and even through death, to His side in glory forever. And so, 
We get those great words twice over for emphasis. I will raise them up on the last day. Again, not even death can snuff out the life that Christ has given to you. As he's given it to the soul, rest assured, he will give it to your body also. All of this is to tell us what it means that he is the true bread of life. All of it is to say to us that from beginning to end and on through, Jesus is our, your, all-sufficient Savior. Someone should say amen. Friend, if you're unbelieving this hour, let it be the last hour. Maybe you've come searching for Christ like these crowds, but our prayer is that instead you felt Him searching you. You see, the thing is, Jesus isn't lost. (laughs) You are. Jesus needn't be found. You need to be found. And Jesus is here to do that. Always. Everyone, verse 40, who looks on the Son and believes in Him will receive eternal life. There it is. Here He is. Believe in Him. It really is that simple. Don't miss grace. Don't miss faith. Don't miss Jesus. And now, beloved, let's be encouraged. Let's be so encouraged to just take of Him and eat. (laughs) Right? Be it salvation, be it for, for ministry, be it in trial, be it very generally to the whole of the Christian life, whatever we could ever truly need or ever truly want from start to finish, then on to glory, Jesus is the bread of life. And therefore, as he said, we have no better labor in life than to feast on all that he is for us. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you for your word. We do pray that you would be glorified in the teaching of it. Please cancel out everything that I have said that is not true to your word. Let your word reign. Let your spirit reign. And let Christ have his glory now. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.